November 8, 2020, former Vice President Joe Biden gave his victory speech as he would be projected to be the 46th President of the United States. In his speech, among other things, President-elect Joe Biden said the following, But now, let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, to lower the temperature, to see each other again, to listen to each other again. To make progress, we must stop treating our opponents as our enemy. We are not enemies. We are Americans. The Bible tells us that to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. In many ways, I can appreciate what I think Joe Biden is trying to say. We are in a very overtly divisive time. 2020 was a pain in the ass, truly. Things have boiled over into a very dangerous place. More than just a pain in the ass. It certainly feels like the tension is getting ready to pop the top off our country in ways. It certainly would be beneficial to be able to work through our issues in a calmer environment. However, President-elect Biden called for us to see each other again. He called for us to listen to each other again. He said, we are not enemies. He said, we're all Americans. As a follower of Christ, I can appreciate him pulling from God's word and invoking a time of healing. And he indicated that. He indicated that it was a time to heal America. If we're honest, though, if we're thorough about the baggage that America brings to the table to this discussion on race, have we, particularly us white folk, have we ever truly seen our black brothers and sisters? I mean, from the jump, we overlooked them in defining who was and was not to be American. We didn't even see them as equal. Many didn't even see them as humans, but chattel. Did we truly see Colin Kaepernick as he took a knee? I'm sure our black brothers and sisters saw our social media profiles that proclaimed Black Lives Matter this year. They saw the plethora of statements made by businesses proclaiming the same thing. And I'd imagine that they even seen some of us extraordinary caucasoids among us ready to evaluate every single statement a company made saying they were in support of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, <laughs> we made a lot of statements this year, didn't we? But did they see us organize as a community when the black vote was under attack in a very real way in Detroit, in Atlanta, in Philly? <laughs> Did we, as white people, ever truly listen to our black brothers and sisters? Did we ever truly hear Punta Kinte tell us who his name is? Did we listen enough to know that that was more than just a cinematic moment for many people, particularly our black brothers and sisters? We certainly heard that whistle from Emmett Till to the damsel in distress, Carolyn Bryant. <laughs> we heard that whether it existed or not. Did we hear Eric Garner when he was telling those cops he couldn't breathe? What about George Floyd as he called for his mom with his last breath? What about Brenda at work? 
Do we listen to her? Joe Biden said that we're not enemies, but Michigan Representative Cynthia Johnson, when she stands up in the face of threats of lynching and says she's not backing down and her foes should tread lightly, Michigan Republicans pull her from her committees and try to shut her down. And Michigan Democrats, what do they do? They twiddled their thumbs. <laughs> and even the AG, the Attorney General of the state, condemned what she said. In the year 2020, it is controversial for a black woman elected to the Michigan House of Representatives to stand up for her community and stand up for herself in the face of being threatened with murder for doing so. Yeah, we need to heal. I agree. And as a follower of Christ, I desire for us to heal. I would desire for us to reconcile. But have we ever truly been united in this country? What does it mean to come back to something that never was? <laughs> that sounds like something I did in my teenage years when I was experimenting with psychedelic drugs. Coming back to something that never was? What is this illusion that we're living in? How can you heal when you don't even acknowledge what's broken? Or maybe you can't acknowledge what's broken because you haven't done the work yourself. And who are you healing? Are you healing that which is external to you? As white people, are we trying to heal other people? <laughs> it's like icing your elbow for a bruised toe. It's like as my brother Keith Jason said, it's like nursing a broken bone back to a fractured bone and calling it healed. So what are we healing? Who are we healing? How are we healing? How do we reconcile when we haven't even gotten to the truth? Welcome to Red to White Boy. African-American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no job. We will make America great again. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some... I assume we're good to be preaching the seed, the soil, the seed, the racism. And that means we can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected President of the United States. This is an indication for a lot of people who have really suffered. You know, the, the, I can't breathe. You know, that wasn't just George Floyd. That was a lot of people that felt they couldn't I think breathe. he is a racist. We have to stand up. We have to speak up. What's happening, y'all? Welcome to episode three of Red the White Boy, a show where we explore the racial realities of everyday Americans. And in the good name of the late great brother John Lewis, we aim to build our capacity to make good trouble. To make good trouble. I look forward to bringing you here, uh, episode three. Uh, before we jump into 
uh, my guest today. Uh, I look forward to bringing you my guest, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, before we jump into that, I just wanted to take the time to, you know, wish you all the best. I know that, uh, you know, we're still coming to a close here in 2020. Uh, been a been a hectic year, been a crazy year with a lot of things going on in this country, in the broader world, uh, with COVID-19 and the restrictions related to that. And I'm not complaining about the restrictions. I think the restrictions are a good thing. But, you know, with it, a lot of us have been cooped up in the house. And, uh, you know, it's, it's put a particular strain on people who are cooped up in the house. A lot of people lost jobs. Um, a lot of people have been in jobs that have had to adjust significantly uh, to, a, to, to a new mode of operation. Um, children, many children aren't in school, so they're at home. My parents are working from home or looking for work from home while taking care of kids. There's a ver- just a variety of different tensions related to COVID-19 and everything that that brought. And also, the, you know, the politicization of, of COVID-19, wearing a mask and not wearing a mask, you know, um, seems like a pretty easy and uh, straightforward thing to me. Just, just wear a damn mask. And uh, if not for yourself, at least for your neighbor, you know, uh, you could be somebody like myself, a uh, pretty healthy 40-year-old man, but uh, with no necessarily conditions that would put me at great risk, right? Not immune compromise. But we have a lot of brothers and sisters out there who who are, you know, a lot of elders, a lot of youth, and everything in between. A variety of different conditions, you know, that make them immune compromised. So, you know, you may catch COVID and it may go through you, maybe difficult but you get through it but there's thousands upon thousands of people millions worldwide that uh that aren't getting through it (laughs) so you know i'd just implore us all to don't be a jackass put a mask on um make sure we're social distanced and uh and take the necessary precautions you know everywhere you go you know um we don't need to feed our flesh and 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 do a bunch of things just because we want to do it we feel like we should have the right to do it you know people are dying out here but anyway um on top of that you know obviously it's been a crazy year for 2020 you have had the uh the the salience of the black lives matter movement because of our black brothers and sisters still under attack in a variety of different ways um that brings with it a lot of conversations in the home a lot of precautions outside of the home for a lot of people, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are living amongst trauma in that regard, you know, and uh, unfortunately, it's not anything new, but um, that doesn't make it any easier for a lot of people. You have a lot of people who've had to have conversations with their children, with their spouses, thinking about, you know, what happens when my child gets to a particular age and is out there and might come across uh, an officer of the law who doesn't have the right mind and has all the power in the world to exercise that wrong-mindedness. I'm not necessarily one to be against the police in general. You know, I live in a community where there can often be a, uh, a very complicated relationship. I got I got love for the police, but I also got um, a lot of a lot of heat for those who are doing it wrong. Who those aren't who those who aren't treating people equitably, equitably, but the truth is I have a lot of brothers who close brothers you know who are police officers as well who experienced negative times with 
law enforcement as a youth and joined the police force so they could be an agent of change. So I think it's a pretty complicated issue, and I think that a lot of people, most people do. But nonetheless, there's a lot of tension around that, um, of course, you know, and, and, and a lot of it's necessary tension. Some of it's unproductive. Some of it's very productive. And and then just there's a lot of things that came with those two two pieces too. You know, you've got issues with families, families being pulled apart, and then you have just a general uh, political environment that is also racially loaded, which you know in in many ways um, has been a focal point of this show. But anyway, uh, related to that, in episode two, I had the opportunity to have my brother Keith Jason come and join me for a good conversation. You know, the, 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 the episode really, uh, you know, the, the, the case of the extraordinary Caucasoid. Uh, you know, interesting, interesting, insightful conversation. You know, um, Keith is a very wise brother, and I hope that you gained as much from listening to our conversation as I got being a part of it. A few things that I just wanted to touch on related to Keith and what he said. Um, two things in particular. You know, well, actually, three things. You know, first and foremost was the, you know, just the, the, you know what I mean. He kind of was being funny about it, and kind of I kind of ran with it. The the concept of the the extraordinary Caucasoid, or uh, you know, it's kind of along the lines of of what I used to say, or I still often say, is the, you know, us white folks, the good white liberals who are competing for the woke white awards. <laughs> um, you know, it's something that uh, actually me and my guests will talk a little bit about today as well. Uh, but I think that it's it's an important thing to think about in terms of what it means to be and try to be an extraordinary Caucasoid. <laughs> it's really about, and from my perspective, this idea of kind of performative, performative activism. You know, when you're out here trying to be seen doing good things instead of just keeping your head down and doing the work humbly. I've been there before. And, uh, you know, it could be people that could be critical and say that I do it still. Um, I don't think I do. I know where my heart's at. Um, and I'm not necessarily looking for anybody's affirmation. You know, I feel like there's a higher calling for me related to my faith, related to being a brother of Phi Beta Sigma and my obligation with that, you know, related to being um, a disciple of Detroit and come back home and, you know, reestablishing my roots here in Detroit, quintessentially black city. So, you know, I've got a lot of things, uh, a lot of reasons um, why um, I'm engaged in the work that I'm doing. I mean, and that's not even mentioning, right, my family. You know, being in an interracial marriage and having a biracial daughter um, that will grow up to be, you know, probably a black woman with a biracial background, you know, and that's complicated within itself. So anyway, uh, the whole concept uh, the idea of being or trying to be an extraordinary Caucasoid is something that I think that provides us with, as white people, uh, something to wrestle with when we question what are we in this for and what does it mean that we can check in and check out at times <laughs> and should we be. Um, also, you know, Keith also talked about uh, one thing that I appreciated that he mentioned was his three two-word phrases. Three two-word phrases. And they were, I'm sorry, you're right, thank you. And really, we were, what he was getting to with that and what we were having a conversation about was to cultivate what a 
old friend back at Duke University, Shaun, used to say, uh, cultivating a culture of humility. And I and I, I would take that culture of humility and think about what it means to internalize it. And I think that what Keith is saying in terms of the three two-word phrases really gets to the root of that. I'm sorry, you're right, thank you. When, when we're engaging in interpersonal relationships across race and how we have these moments as white people where we might have blind spots, maybe we don't see something and we're called out for it. Maybe we've done something that is fundamentally racist, but you know we're gonna go up, scream up and down that we're not racist, but but it doesn't matter. We we did something, maybe did something racist or something racially insensitive. You know what the the power of simply acknowledging someone's pain that we may have contributed to by saying I'm sorry, and you're right, and you're and you're right because your reality is valuable, just as valuable as mine. But in this case, because I've done something to hurt you, you're right. What I did was wrong. And thank you. And the thank you piece is big. A lot of For a lot of us white folks, we don't get to that thank you piece, whether we verbalize it or internally um, and internalize it. Thank you means you being willing to authentically engage me and actually call me out on something that I did is actually a blessing that can help edify me into a better person. Thank you. So I'm sorry. You're right. Thank you. You know, one of the things, and um, me and my brother today, I briefly mentioned this, uh, but in episode one, my sister Kay had a lot of wise things to say, just as Jay did. But Kay, Kay mentioned uh, briefly you know, the pillars of white supremacy. And one of the things, one of the pillars of white supremacy is this idea of perfectionism. And perfectionism, our obsession with trying to present ourselves as perfect and without flaw, you know, that gets broken down when we say, I'm sorry, you're right, thank you. Or we have to break it down to get to that point. It doesn't mean that that's not the end game. Okay, because you acknowledge that you did something wrong and that it hurt somebody and that you thank somebody for pointing that out so that you can better yourself. You don't pat yourself on the back, but um, it's important to acknowledge that. And, and, and beginning to do that can, in a subtle way, resist the internalized white supremacy that many of us might have in us. And that might be what's upholding this idea of perfectionism and is hindering our ability to acknowledge when we have something wrong. <laughs> you know, if if somebody has a disease or a broken bone or or they're sick or ill or they have an addiction, you know, they can't they can't really tackle fixing that problem if they don't acknowledge that ex- that it exists. You know, and when a doctor comes along and says that you have this or you have that Right? You have this broken bone and, and they and they really they diagnose the issue for you. You know? And it's we 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 should be approaching that with a certain sense of gratitude. And when we're engaging in cross racial relationships and somebody points out our blind spots or something that we've done that is racially sensitive, they're helping us diagnose the internalized racism that we have in us 
we can be good people. I can be a good white person and still do things that are racially insensitive. And it's something that we got to continue to diagnose. And we have to cure that, right? We have to take a dose of whatever it is that beats that back. And we have to continue to exercise. Now, another thing that Keith had brought up and um, that I wanted to mention, and then we'll go ahead and go to a break after this, but important, important concept um, or important lesson. I hate to say concept because I don't want to over-intellectualize anything. Um, but uh, he said, you know, the the idea that he learned from somebody, I can't remember who it was that he said he learned this from, um, you have to go back to episode two and listen to that. I, I should remember, but uh, he he there was a phrase of uh, "Do nothing for me without me." I think that's what he said. Uh, some rendition of that: "Do nothing for me without me." And this and this really resonated with me because it's one of the most frustrating things that I've tried to push in various organizations that were predominantly white or white-led, or even in multi-ethnic spaces that were white-led. <laughs> In order to truly do nothing for me without me, um, you really have to get representation at the table. And you know what, what, what Keith's talking about is the idea, as one example, of white people coming up with solutions to problems that impact people of color in the absence of people of color. Do nothing for me without me. So we have all these ideas of how to fix problems, but we don't even know what the problem is. We're walking around acting like a doctor, and we got a you know a bachelor's degree in <laughs> in business, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. Um, you really you know, in order to kind of move toward this space of do nothing for me without me, you have to build authentic relationships and create spaces within your organization and your spheres of influence for marginalized voices to truly lead in various ways. As white people, you know, we can't just keep doing what we deem as good things for black people and other people of color and then pat ourselves on the back. You know, sometimes we get lost in that performative aspect. See, I watched, as an example, many white-led organizations over the last year make bold statements on Black Lives Matter. <laughs> most of those were white-led and most had few, if any, black voices in pivotal roles within their organization or their group. And one of those organizations I was actually a part of. Um, and I was serving in that organization as a squeaky wheel for a good four years. Um, I tirelessly, in ways, pushed people with influence within that organization to find ways to be more directly, intentionally, and intimately engaged in the black community right here in Detroit. There's a, a, a lot of very well-intentioned white folk. I'll give that, you know. Um, and I provided a plethora of ways over the four years that could have helped increase their chances of the organization effectively getting black voices to the table. Black voices, not just black voices, but de black Detroit voices for an organization that is in Detroit claiming to be a s support of Detroit. Um, and in and, and, and many ways are, but there were limitations to it. But here's the thing is that every time I pushed the envelope or even provided loving suggestions on things that could be done, and it might even be stuff like hold your meetings at, at black-owned businesses, <laughs> get familiar with black spaces. You'll get uncomfortable if you're not used to it, but you'll get comfortable over a period of time. But every time I did that, right, 
little things to big things. And, you know, I got, def- I got, I ran into walls of defensiveness, you know, I, I became isolated, right? Because people distanced themselves from me. People got uncomfortable. I believe it was really because I was bringing a critical lens to the table amongst the quote unquote good whites. I've, I've experienced it time and time again. And after a few years of being a squeaky wheel on these issues and nothing coming of it, we were presented with 2020 and the Black Lives Matter movement gained even more salience. And this group, you know, was trying to be an ally to the black community, making very bold, you know, um, statements. But it was largely on social media, you know. And so I just kind of, I had to roll my eyes, you know, and then became... Some in the organization became critical of what other folks were doing and weren't doing. So their role was the being the police of those who were authentically, you know, making statements on Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, I was embedded in this organization and I tried to actually help you fundamentally make change and it fell on deaf ears. And now you're going to be the judge of people. Oh, my Lord. So and, and I and I say that. With love, because I, I'm not perfect. I'm not a know-it-all, even though I was accused of being a know-it-all. <laughs> um, but I was significantly more experienced in, in, in engaging that relationship and being engaged in the community um, than the folks who were accusing me of being a know-it-all. I think it was just a defensive reaction. So it was, it was, it was an interesting thing. It wasn't new. It wasn't out of the ordinary, but it was frustrating because there's a lot of momentum and I think that there's a lot of hope with this new wave of seemingly multiracial coalition building, at least against police brutality. But, you know, we got to keep it going because you're already seeing, you know, the the the, the, the Facebook pages, the, the backgrounds are changing back to normal, you know. The Twitter accounts are, you know, the the statements aren't being made anymore. It's died down, and some of those folks are moving on to the next social distance, our social justice movement. You know, it's like we've gentrified social justice. We've particularly gentrified racial justice, and so that's just painful to watch. But you know, I appreciate what Keith was saying though, because really the whole idea of do something for me or do nothing for me without me really would help make some ways so that we can kind of avoid that performative activism. But anyway, you know, um, I want to, uh, we're going to go to a commercial here or go to a break here soon. And we come back, we'll talk with my brother, Craig Elliott. But, you know, um, before we do that, you know, just to share with you a little bit, you know, Craig's a good friend of mine that, uh, I lost a little contact with over the last four to five years. We, we stayed connected on Facebook, but our friendship lost its intimacy and and you know what i mean is we used to convene for a week every year at a conference called encore around uh, i think it was memorial day weekend and an encore is the national conference on race and ethnicity it wasn't so much a conference um in the sense of uh, about learning a bunch of things it wasn't about learning how to intellectualize the racial experience of our brothers and sisters of color um it was really a, a a time to connect, to build coalitions, to refuel, um, because many of us were drained throughout the year because we might be at organizations that resist racial equity in various ways. And it's weird for me to say that as a white person because it's like we're drained as white people doing 
anti-racism work within our organizations while we're actually doing this um, in ways alongside our black brothers and sisters and other people of color who are living this. So if you think we're drained with some of the resistance we're facing, imagine what they're facing. And that that, that takes some listening. And and, and me and Craig will talk about that. But at this conference, and and Corey, you know, we really had an opportunity to connect, to learn, and grow together. We could hold each other accountable. Um, That's what I like about Craig. He's a gentle guy, but he won't coddle you. And as white folks, when it comes to us learning to be different, uh, learning to be more anti-racism, or being more anti-racist, I'm sorry, we tend to expect or we function in a way that seems to suggest that we expect to be coddled. We are very fragile in a lot of ways. Not everybody, but a lot of us in different ways. We often expect a pat on our back for doing what our black brothers and sisters and other people of color have to live daily, as I said. But, you know, Craig, you know, as my, you know, one of my uh, white big brothers will say, uh, he's got a good balance. I appreciate his brotherhood. I appreciate the accountability that comes along with our relationship. Um, And at this conference, we coordinated together a caucus group. It's called Whites Partnering to Dismantle Racism. It's a white accountability group, white anti-racist accountability group. And we coordinated that group along with our three sisters, Kathy, Elaine, and Beth. Uh, we grew together and helped guide other white brothers and sisters as they processed the conference and thought about, for some of them, you know, this new world that they're being opened up to. Uh, some people were, you know, have been doing more internal work for years, but still doing work. Um, but we were there to help them process all this and think about how they could take the conversation and the action of from that conversation out of that room out of the conference and back home into our lives and into our works and into our homes and into our neighborhoods and into our local businesses, etc. So, you know, Craig's a good guy. I look forward to you all getting to know him. Um, and uh, you'll get to do that. We have a good long conversation that I look forward to bringing to you. Anyway, but let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, you'll get to meet my friend, my brother, my mentor, Craig. All right, y'all. Welcome back to Red the White Boy. I am pleased and I am honored to have my next guest here with me today, a brother that I've I've known for some years, but we've become disconnected in in, in the last couple of years. So it's great to reconnect with him. But um, somebody who I do admire the work that he's done and he's helped me grow in my consciousness and thinking about white anti-racism. My brother Craig Elliott, how you doing today, Craig? I'm great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. And uh, I, and I'm honored that you ask. So just uh, grateful to be here with you. Yeah, you know, when I um, decided to kind of launch this show, uh, you know, 
a lot of the the primary target like this one of the target audiences is our white brothers and sisters you know um and i would say that is the primary audience although the show is for for anybody you know to to enjoy but i started to think about you know a list of folks who i've connected with over the years and of course you were among uh, a short list you know along with you know our sisters kathy and elaine and yeah. Beth, you know, who uh, we worked with that with that Encore. And we'll get into that conversation. But uh, before we get into that, um, I know who you are. And the audience has been listening to me talk at them through the speakers for some time. So they know who I am. <laughs> Can you share with us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and, uh, and, and maybe a little bit about some of the efforts that you've been involved in related to anti-racism? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so yeah, so uh, I'm Craig Elliott's pronouns are he, him, and his, and uh, I work in higher education. So I work at a university in Oakland, California, and uh, been been in higher education all my life. Um, and you know, it's my it's my career, it's my calling, um, and it's it's the, really the location of the work that I want to do. I want to work with uh, with college students and make a difference in their lives. Um, uh, kind of born and raised in California, kind of spent most of my life here. Um, came back when, um, when it was time, you know, when I fell in love and this is where my wife was and, um, and, and I've stayed here ever since had kids, uh, have kids. And, uh, so kind of rooted my life here in California. So certainly I have the, the, uh, the West coast perspective, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I th- think that it's been, um, what I appreciate about um, California, if you will, and, and in particular the Bay Area, so San Francisco Bay Area, um, you know, it's helped. It's helped me grow my consciousness. Um, it isn't perfect, and it isn't, you know, it's it's got a lot of issues as well. But I think as a as a as a playground for engagement and new thoughts and and um, proximity to. Um, radical work being done. I think about Oakland in particular and just how much deep community work is happening in Oakland. And, and for me to, to be in the mix of that and paying attention to it has also helped me um, learn kind of my, my role, my responsibility, what I need to do, what I need to go learn um, and how I need to practice. Um, so, um, so it's been it's been a really good place um, to to be. Um, you know, I, I would say kind of the consciousness wise and how you know certainly how we got together. Um, you know, raised in a progressive family, grew up a family of teachers, um, and so you know certainly taught to think, but also um, you know they had a vision for uh, for making the world a better place too. Yeah. Um, but it re- really was. Um, rooted in, you know, still kind of white middle-class suburban norms, uh, which were, um, you know, you know, a lot of what we talked about in the past about, you know, hoping for a better world, but still very rooted in, in the, in kind of whiteness and white supremacy and, and patriarchy and, um, and, and continuing those things. So, um, so it took me a while to really figure out, that level of programming that I grew up in. Um, but I knew um, one of the key moments, I think, so a couple of key moments for my uh, awareness building, if you will, that led, led me to 
go to Encore and meet you. Um, so the first I think was, um, was I'm old enough to, to remember the, the LA riots in 92. Um, and, um, you know, again, <laughs> police violence, racist police actions, um, are not new. And, uh, and so we were, you know, we were, a lot of people were dealing with that back in the, in the past, but, um, you know, th that was a, a, a turning moment for me about really um, an empathetic understanding of why people were so angry and fed up and why they were acting the way that they were acting. Um, and I could, I could relate to that, that I could see that if these things were happening to me too, I'd be pissed um, and I'd want to be doing things and I'd be uh, asking, screaming for justice and acting for justice and, um, and resisting uh, the oppression and the violence that was around me. Second thing was, um, as I kind of continued my career in higher education, I became responsible for, um, you know, setting community rules. And, um, and as I began to pay attention to um, the impact of some of the rules that I was a part of being a part of, I was starting to see that there were patterns that, um, and an example of it that was, you know, uh, community noise violations uh, living on campus um, and what respect was for, for that. And, um, you know, I started to see a pattern where more African-American men were being reported for violations of, of noise, um, you know, quiet hours, if you will, than other racial groups. And, 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 and I had that moment of like, that's not what we were trying to do. And this is what's happening. And I don't understand why, and I need to go, I need to go figure that out. So that led me to uh, go to the Social Justice Training Institute. Um, and in fact, it was that was the second year that it was going. Um, so it was a perfect timing of um, learning about uh, oppression um, and the system and how it was all playing yeah. out, and kind of what my role in it was. Um, and so that was really um, it was a really great training. That's where I met Kathy O'Bear. Um, Jamie Washington, Vernon Wall, uh, Mark Cullen at the time, um, and um, started me on a path to, to do, to pay attention. Um, and part of one of my walkaways for that was, um, you know, that I was, a, you know, I was well-intended. I had a great vision for the world, but also was not paying attention to the, to the system and how I perpetuated uh, whiteness, white supremacy, this system. Um, yeah. So I was, you know, it's this idea that we talk about, like being a good person isn't enough to make a difference out there. Like we want more good people. Awesome. And systems don't change because we're good people. Right. Um, and so, um, so SJTI helped me understand that oh, I need to do some system work. And so um, I also learned there was a lot of things I just didn't know. Um, hearing, you know, I appreciate SJTI about the practice of listening, mm. uh, listening to other people's stories and experiences and, uh, and not interrupting and not taking, not making them my own stories, not putting myself in them and making it about me, but really just listening um, and hearing the pain of, and, and the experiences that people have and, and the, the daily indignities that they have to go through and sort through. Um, and just trying to take that and hold that, I think helped give me another level of awareness, but also another level of empathy about um, the work we needed to do. And then I think the third main thing um, was 
like big, becoming a parent. And, you know, we talked about this, you know, on our own before we started, but there's something about um, being responsible for another human being in that way that I hope that I think clicks, at least it did for me, it clicks that a sense of urgency and a sense of action and a sense of purpose um, for equity and social justice and, 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 and my system, my system work about that. Certainly it helped me, you know, as, as a, in, in the way that parents are teachers and, and you have this responsibility to be a part of the education and training of the kids that you're with, certainly there was a, it continued, it helped me continue to, to learn and grow and deepen my own knowledge and awareness and understanding so that I could then communicate that. But um, I think more so than that, it helped me really click into that purpose about um, difference that I needed to make. And I think one of the, one of the ways, one of the really important visceral ways that I got that idea was um, that, you know, at some point it dawned on me that um, I, I had two boy, I mean, so our kids were two boys, um, but it's, it clicked in me. I was like, oh, they're two white boys. Hmm. And, and if I don't figure out how to do anything different, all I'm, I'm just going to be putting two more white men out in the world. Um, and I don't want that. I want, I want, I want the, I want it better for the world and I want better for my kids. And, um, there's a concept that, that Howard Zinn talked about in his, um, his autobiography, um, he, it, and it's called you can't be neutral on a moving train mm -hmm. and so it was that idea of yeah that i can't be neutral about raising what it means to raise two white men in the world um otherwise it's just going to perpetuate the same the same shit happening and um so i needed to i needed to not be neutral on that moving train that i needed to do something to get that train on a different track um yeah. And, and so I think for me, that was the clarity of, of the action that I wanted to take. Um, and, and kind of those last two, I think SJTI and become a parent was, was what led me to, um, to go to NCOR, the National Conference on Race and Ethnicity. Um, and because I had met part, Kathy already and um, started to go in there and ran into her there. She was the one who started our kind of what we call back then the white caucus groups with like what we'd say, like, you know, white, uh, white accountability groups um, so that we could do our own work uh, for racial justice um, and, um, and role model that. Um, and so that's, you know, got connected and that's how I met you. And, and, it, and I think we did, we did, we did some really great work. You know, I don't know if you know, in a way that those that white accountability groups are still moving, uh, still happening. So and there's new generations of people who are, yeah. kind of starting and continuing their process yeah I, I, conscious yeah i had just reconnected so i i had unplugged from social media so i shut down my old facebook account okay uh because <clears throat> i think this was again uh kind of related to being a family man and and right. starting to think uh yeah, of being one with my wife and just now all of a sudden how you are and what you give people access to isn't right. about you uh, yeah. And I realized that I was like connected to like 5,000 people and then many, yeah. many, many acquaintances. And I yeah. said, okay, I need to get away from social media and I need right. to reel this in. So I shut it down and began to rebuild a, a, a new Facebook 
page with people who I really knew. And I, so then I replay, I plugged back into the Facebook group that I remember actually um, setting up for us. Right. Uh, and it's been interesting just seeing, you know, the, the show continue, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. That yeah. kind of warmed my heart because I felt, you know, that, you know, the thing about Encore and, um, and, and the, in the caucus group was, well, there was two things. One was that there was sometimes you would come and it would be a sigh of relief because you could be one of a few people at your institution um, who right. were actually trying to, you know, uh, be the squeaky wheel on a variety of issues of racial equity and justice. And it's just draining. And then you come to a conference like that and you get to rejuvenate with a bunch of drained people. And, right. and funny, it's actually, in a way, it's kind of weird to say that because it's like, as white guys, we're opting into the work and we're drained. It's like, oh, boo-hoo. Imagine right. what it's like to be like a black woman, you know? And 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 that was a that was an eye-opening and enlightening thing for me to just kind of come to of like, stop feeling sorry for yourself because you were born in a skin right. that you didn't have yeah. to worry about this. Um, but uh, the other part of it was as much as it was a release, there was also this tension, I think, a lot of times initially starting with the group and, and, and receiving new folks because there's just this weird competitive nature between oh, uh, yeah. me and my brother uh, Keith Jason we're talking about in episode two the the exceptional caucasoids you know what I mean like, right bump right. It, there can only be one we must come into this room <laughs> and fight it out because we need to be the exceptional white person of people of color right. um, and you know and and it's there's just such a strong um, it, it's liberating to get past that piece right and yeah, like, for get sure. over yourself and just be <laughs> yeah, and right. do the work in a humble way you know um instead of doing it in a performative way oh uh, for sure right well and and to recognize like just how, what a mess that is and and how like you know that's part of what holds us back is where that we're in that we, we've t we've taken on these ideas this kind of this white supremacy so deeply that we end up having to be in competition with each other to try to, you know, fight to the death to who's going to be the, the good one. Um, and it's, you know, and it's, it's bullshit. And, uh, you know, I don't even know if you got a rating on this, so I probably, you know, I probably oh, shouldn't oh, be swearing oh, like that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, it's, but, oh, there's cursing on it. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, cool. Yeah. It, it's bullshit. And, uh, but, it, and it's a mess and this is, it, it's what holds us back. Um, and this is, you know, again, it perpetuates, you know, people of color uh, who are, who maybe would be open to being partners with us and they see this shit in us and they're like, peace out, you're a mess. <laughs> I want nothing to do with you. Right. And, and so, right. You know, so I think one of the, one of the things I appreciate is about those spaces. I think we tried to have those spaces be places where we could work our shit out yeah. so that we would be making a mess in the bigger world a little less and we could be better partners um, yeah, for this. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, there's a, there's another dynamic um, and, and it made me think about this uh, when you were talking about the importance of listening, um, which, which, which I would agree. I think, I think that my first piece of advice that I came to after years of doing internal work and still doing it was 
to start like when when I when I connect with a white brother or sister who says, you know, their heart's in the right place. They're trying to figure out, you know, where they fit in and doing the right thing as it relates to racial justice. And my first piece of advice is shut the hell up and listen. Yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> shut up and listen. But so there's but so there's that piece, but there's also this other dynamic that I've grown to have some internal tension about in its our as white people our unwillingness to put our mm. vulnerability out there for each yeah. other and 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 people of color to learn from you know what i mean uh, well even though um many already know it because they have to navigate our spaces in ways that we don't but you know there's just so much depth when you start to peel back the layers like you know when when, when you get to a place and you can say uh, this isn't necessarily my experience, but but you could say I'm a white man that was born and raised and have lived in white spaces my whole life, and yet race has everything to do with my daily experience. And then try to yeah. figure that shit out right there. You know what I mean? Because because right. right. when you start to peel back the layers, um, and and you're able to to think about that and 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 move accordingly, you know what I mean? Then then it puts you in in a, in a pretty good space to at least yeah. make an adjustment from somebody who wants to do stuff and 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 adjust to what um a local uh, sister here um I, I keep on mentioning her over and over in this podcast lauren hood she's uh, does a lot of great stuff here in detroit but she said you know when she was getting a lot of um i think a lot of white folks in particular who as a result of the black lives matter movement like kind right. of emerging in salience you had a lot of white, she had a lot of white people saying like, what can I do? And, and, and she was yeah. like imploring folks to stop worrying about what to do and think about yes. how to be different. Yeah, that's how it, right. Um, yeah. And and so the, the, the tension that, but I was started to talk about was being in spaces where it's a maybe a multiracial space that's engaging our racial realities and listening to people of color and particularly black and brown brothers and sisters who mm -hmm. share openly share their experiences, their trauma, <laughs> you know, this, yeah. this, you know, um, assault that they're experiencing on a regular basis. And we, and, and on one hand for us to be able to listen and understand that experience yeah. and internalize what it means, but then re reciprocate the vulnerability you know, not yeah. to make it about ourselves and recentering whiteness, but um, but but to 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 be able to um, begin to peel back what it is, you know, um, for us, and because we have this access to white spaces to very much know if we really think about it, we very much know what many people of color are navigating because we experience right. those spaces absent of them and know how it is when they're not present. So you can only imagine how it is, you know, for them when they're navigating it. And, and that actually that kind of cultural knowledge to a certain extent of, of our experience, you know what I mean? And what exists within those spaces um, could be valuable, not only to our white brothers and sisters, but other people of color, you know what I mean? So we can learn to actually build, you know, some kind of true coalition, you know, to dismantle. <laughs> things you know right. so i don't know that so that's yeah, that, right. i say that as long way of saying like this balance between listening but also reciprocating the vulnerability you know what i'm saying 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm, I'm in agree with you. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I appreciate what, uh, we said about the, you know, the, the, the action versus the being, um, and you know, I, Becky Martinez, Dr. Becky Martinez, um, talks about it. I think similarly, um, where she talks about uh, it's, it's about being, not doing. Um, and I, you know, I think, you know, whiteness says it's about doing like, that's how we've been trained to show up. Like there's a problem we solve. We get, and, and I will say too, gender, like that's, there's maleness all wrapped up in that. Like, you know, how, how long did it take me to, to <laughs> just shut up and listen with my wife? Um, rather than being like, you know, she would express something to me and I would to move to go do something about it or try to take care of it or fix it. And, or, um, or our overemphasis on what our intent, right. our overintent was in your yeah. way saying, I don't care what your intentions were. This is how you made me feel and deal with that. That's, yeah, right. that, 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 that showed me a lot about the world, just navigating that in marriage. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's, again, it's the same thing about cross-race work, cross-gender work, cross um, you know, uh, orientation work, what have you. It's, um, you know, I think the, we're afraid. Um, we're afraid of being, we're afraid of being vulnerable and we're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of being messy. Um, you know, and again, I think that's, it's to, to do what, to do what we need to do to be anti-racist. And I'll use Ibram Kendi's term for that because i think he's he's got some really important points for us i think to pay attention to um but to, to be anti-racist we have to act and we have to do work to be counter to the white narratives that we've been trained and so we have to we have to work in 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 um in resistance to ourselves yeah to be able to show up to be the kind of person that we're we're trying to be be anti-racist and um and and that's a that's a really complicated thing if you start like you said unpeeling those layers i certainly was said like i you know i don't know that i was able to do it well 20 years ago (laughs) i think probably now i i I can do it better than i used to i still there's still work i need to do but now i also think there's um it's where you are in your journey um, but, but I think you're right. It's about that, that vulnerability. We're afraid. Uh, and I'm, and I say this from my own experience too. We're afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, because I'm afraid to say something or share a story or a thought or a fear or a worry or, uh, um, because I'm afraid that somebody's going to say you're a racist, that I'm a racist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted the good one. And, <laughs> right. Right. You see, I'm a good racist. Exactly. Um, and, 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 and we got to let that go. Like, I think uh, just what you're talking about, I think about, you know, being able to hear, um, the stories of, you know, black brothers and sisters men and women, different genders, uh, different orientations, um, you know, Asian American, um, Pacific Islander, you know, again, all, all racial identities and experiences and all, what are probably all marginalized groups um, right, right. be able to listen to those experiences and, and take it and hold it and honor it and feel with them. And then, and then I like what you said, you know, maybe not in that right moment, but maybe at some point to just absorb that in and then 
at some point later connect back and say, how can, how can we partner together to make a difference here? Now, and some of the things that we may not be able to, but if you're talking about like, we're doing work on a college campus in my case, right. like that, that connection about let's be a partner to change this, I think is important. Um, you know, if it's, if it's something about somebody's past experience or whatnot, I may, may not be able to do that, or I may not have a relationship with that person on a personal level to be able to, to, to do that. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, we've got to be vulnerable. I mean, we've got to be authentic. We've got to be vulnerable. Um, we've got to be willing to show up when it's hard, um, to, to we've got to be able to, we've got to be willing to use some of our capital. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, our, our white capital, um, to make a difference for others. Um, and we got to learn to step back and stand with, not stand in front. Right, right. Yeah, you know, you said one thing that made, you know, about us um, and our unwillingness to be vulnerable and how, I forget what you said, but it just reminded me of, um, in, in episode one, I had a conversation with my brother Jay and his wife Kay. Kay um, talked about um, the kind of the pillars of white supremacy, and mm, we yeah. talked about this a bit. And I don't, know, I don't remember whether or not this conversation actually, because we had like an hour and a half conversation. I had to edit some stuff down, so I don't know if, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> like we, we could have went on and on and on. Um, but uh, she, we were talking about perfectionism as one of the pillars mm. of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and this is the thing. This is this is where it just it opens up, you know, when you begin to break that down and cultivate what a colleague back at Duke, um, Shayun, um, she used to say, uh, cultivating a culture of humility mm. internally and within the environment. Yeah. You can open up so many great opportunities when you break that down. Like I, so for example, I, if I compare and contrast, uh, uh a situation that I was presented with like 15 years ago and uh, and in a moment that I was presented with within the last month. About 15 years ago, I was contracted by the Michigan Roundtable for Diversity and Inclusion to do some community organizing up in Mount Pleasant. They had heard me speak at a um, rally um, or at an event for... Um, the the well variety journey toward forgiveness right mm -hmm. which was a healing initiative that was initiated by white bison native american uh wellness organization to acknowledge the history of indian boarding schools and its impact and so we we were organizing yeah. locally in mount pleasant because there was the mount pleasant indian industrial school i was one of the speakers so so these folks heard me speak and it was really about accountability within the white community like what what are we yeah. making of this you know and i wasn't necessarily as articulate as you know i would like to be then but but the point was right. made right that we have a responsibility yeah. in this and so anyway, long story short, had, uh, had contracted me to do some community organizing that was geared toward bridging the divide between the local indigenous community, which was mm -hmm. largely Anishinaabe, the Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe, um, and, uh, and the white community. And so a lot of the work, um, one of the things that I did was organizing a community conversation that would basically sit 
um, our native brothers and sisters at the table with our white brothers and sisters to have a conversation, yeah. a real conversation about the dynamics in the region and the history and this, that, and the other thing, right? So I had this whole program planned out, and then I reached out to my brother Hunter Jr. He's the I think he's still the director of uh, behavioral health, and I you know to get his assistance, and you know try to recruit some native brothers and sisters. And he said, "Well, have you talked to anybody from the tribe?" And I said, "I'm talking mm. to you." And he laughed at me on the phone, <laughs> and man, it hurt my soul because I'm one of the good whites at that time. You know right. what I mean? I'm a yeah. good white. <laughs> And, yeah. and, um, and, and the reason that he was laughing at me was I had built this whole thing yep. and I, and then, and then I invited people to the table who were the most impacted by the issue at hand after I had already set the whole agenda. And, yeah. um, it was a blessing that Hunter was so transparent and just himself and basically right. in his own way said, you need to step out of your whiteness, son. <laughs> You know, and, yep. and, and, uh, and, and figure this out that, you know, and, but he ended up helping me and we ended up getting people yeah. to the table and I learned a lot in that process. So, but that was really embarrassing, you know, during that time, because right. it was probably, um, you know, just like I said, just seeing myself as, as this exceptional white. And now fast forward to like a month ago, we were having a conversation in a staff meeting and we were talking about uh, the legacy of um the namesake of Wayne State and mm. his relationship or lack thereof or poor relationship with the local indigenous community and what yeah. what can be done about that and you know um and so they were just talking about like this is something that has come about you know is there anything that we can do to you know address this and maybe put some programs on around about this and 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 I and, and right off the bat I said you know I think maybe one of the first things that we do is that we locate um, yeah. people that exist today that descend from those who are most immediately impacted by yeah. um, what this guy did and get them to the table first and um, and then have a conversation about what would be beneficial to do moving forward. So yeah. um, Keith Jason in, in episode two, he said something like, do, do nothing for me without me, something yeah. like yeah. that. And, and yeah. so, and so that was just a huge, uh, a huge um, thing to learn. But the reason that I bring that up is that had I just gotten wrapped up in my insecurity, right. in my yeah. pride to be perfect and be the, you know, the exceptional Caucasoid back then and never learned from that and actually yeah. saw that a brother was being authentic to me, even if it yeah. hurt that that was a blessing that he did that, that he spoke yeah. into me the way that he did, that it actually positioned me better so that when I found myself in my spheres of influence 15 years down the road, I said, hey, instead of us doing this in a performative way and saying, look at what we did, we put on, a, and I'm not saying that, you know, my colleagues yeah, no. were doing, or that was their intention, but once again, that could be the impact, you know, and we yeah, have exactly amongst white folks, or in this case, a bunch of non-native folks who are discussing what happened. And these are the solutions that we came up about what we did. Yeah. My well, it keeps that cycle going. I mean, you know, I, lo I love that example about, you know, I think, and this goes back to, I think the, the, the vulnerability, the vulnerability to learn the lesson in the moment or to at least hold on to it until you can figure out what the, what the message is or what you need to learn about that. 
Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, because I think just even as you're talking about thinking about and relating to my own experiences when it's been similar where um, it's been, that's hard. It's hard to take your ego out of that situation mm-hmm. and, and say this, you know, there's, this is a gift of knowledge that somebody's trying to pass on for me. And for me to, to, to take the time to figure out and do the work so it could, so that I can understand it. Um, and it, you know, probably wasn't, it probably took you a bit of time to, to have that connect, yeah. but, but the, but the, the, what mattered about that is that it did connect and, and, um, and, and you were able to, to put another ripple, ripple out in the, into the world because you had learned that earlier lesson. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things of, that I, I hope for others that I think that I'm trying to be a, help people follow. Like, I wouldn't say I'm a role model, but that idea about wanting to be somebody that people can see publicly, a white person that people can see publicly where other white people can follow in our path yeah. of, of how to be vulnerable and accountable and, um, and, and to, to do the work that we need to do so that we can do the action that we need to do with others, not for others. Right. Um, and, you know, we've got to do, be able to do our own work and our own learning to be able to show up in those places and be good partners. Um, and, and I think prior to that, you know, again, 20 years ago, well, probably, I mean, there's probably lots of examples, but, you know, yeah, it's like, I'm ready to make change. I want to jump in and do it, but I'm not stopping to think about who else needs to be there. Uh, yeah. or who has done the work before I showed up? Yeah. That's also a question. Because uh, yeah, yeah. um, oftentimes there's, you know, people have been doing the work <laughs> years before we decided to wake up and pay attention. Right. We come in and Christopher Columbus it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We've discovered right. this issue. I know. There's a problem. We're going to fix it. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's, it's so true. And, uh, but just yeah, again, that it's a, that's another way about being vulnerable, about being taking the less learning. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, I, I want to uh, uh, pivot a little bit because um, there's another um, kind of conversation that I wanted to get in uh, with you yeah. uh, about. Um, so, in episode two, uh, my brother Keith, Jason. Uh, and I were chatting and he was uh, hesitant to refer to the post-President Trump era and the current mm-hmm. President Biden era or that that is come yeah. right as a time of healing. He said, you know, I don't want to say t- uh, healing, but right. So I caught that in our conversation. I followed up with Keith, um, shot him a text message because I wanted to understand, you know, what he was referring to. I thought I knew what he was, what yeah. he meant, you know, but I, I didn't want to assume. And I knew I was going to, uh, I was, I was going to go in that direction in episode three. Yeah. He affirmed yeah. what I thought, you know, and he's, you know, that, um, that, and I agree with him, right. That the idea of uh, to heal from president Trump era uh, is kind of like nursing a broken bone back fractured bone and calling it healing mm. or yeah, you know right. or i think about it in the context of for so many years I, I i've done this too i think it was only really recently that i really start started checking myself on this the idea of me being engaged in racial reconciliation and yeah, then actually right. coming a little bit more to the reality 
that how do you reconcile that which never was unified? And it's not to say that there are pockets of unity and pockets of, you know, multiracial coalition building and organizing, you know, like you talked about, you know, we hear about things in in Oakland, you know, that that go on there, you know, so it's not to say that, you know, we don't have these pockets, but by and large, like as a country, there's never been like, you know, a, a, a unified place that we've been in. What are you, what are, what are your thoughts about that in terms of healing and racial reconciliation in the United yeah. States? Uh, great question. Um, you know, so a couple of th- or at least a, a, a thoughts on a couple of different levels. And I guess, um, you know, I thought about, you know, I think there's, I think it's important that we're, we're clear about the words we're using. Um, and I, you know, I think as using your, the analogy you talked about, about the broken bone, I think there's, us being clear about there's repair work that's needed, there's reconciliation work that's needed, um, and and probably and then down the road there's healing, um, and we're we can't get to the healing. Um, and as you're talking about, we can't get to the healing until we start re- acknowledging that there's a a problem in the first place, and so from a country level, from a society level. We're not yet at a place where we're ready to reconcile, ready to ready to acknowledge that there's a racism problem. Right. Um, you know, we're not even ready to acknowledge that there was a historic that there's a problem in our past. Right. Um, or, or we're just barely beginning to note that to say, you know, um, you know, we'll say slavery is bad, but I, we're not talking about how it was bad, what it did. Um, you know that how how it was it it was another form of genocide that we perpetuated on a, on a population and a community of people, right? Um, and so, so we can't, we we're, we can't get to healing. Um, but you know, I think there's something about um, and and at the same point, I think this this time and place that we're in, um. The Trump era, I, I don't even know what the right words for any of this was, but, right. um, you know, uh, paying it to this last year was so difficult and so painful in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was, it was painful to witness the continued murders and violence against black people. Yeah. Um, and there, there was others. I mean, these, those weren't the only, um, targets of that violence and hate and right um but it was painful to continue to watch it and and to and to to be to be in a place where i as a a white person have tried to change that to, to, to to interrupt that oppression and to realize that absolutely nothing that i've done has made a damn damn bit of difference yeah um and so, and I, there was white people paid attention collectively, white people paid attention differently this year than I can recall in any time soon. So, so there was a, there's something that's different about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, and so maybe, maybe we're, we're starting, maybe there's a generation of white people um, that are, is ready to admit that there's a problem yeah. and can, can start the work of repair. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in that same way, I think that um, 
you know, President Biden, upcoming President Biden, President-elect Biden, isn't necessarily going to change. His, his being in the office isn't going to change significantly anything that we've experienced. I mean, it's going to take us at least four years to un, unpack what we just went through and, and likely very much longer because it's, you know, like it's, it didn't start with Trump. Right. So Trump was just the kind of last worst person to be doing this. Yeah, he just took um, a dog whistle and tossed it out and said. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so it's just, so it's going to take us, it's going to take us some time to, to, to make some good traction about that. But yeah. in terms of like who, who I want, I mean, I have, I'm hopeful that Biden's going to start acknowledging it in a way that allows us and a whole lot of other people, you know, community organizers and um, there's so many groups out there trying to, to, to do great work about it. Um, but, but acknowledging it in a way that allows us to then begin to, to do the work, to admit it so that we can start doing the repair work. Yeah. And then, I mean, then I'm hopeful that if we spend, you know, the next five, 10 years of doing the repair work, then we can get to the reconciliation work. Yeah. And so that our kids can then pick up, you know, the next generation can pick up the repair work and maybe take us to reconciliation. Yeah. You know, one, one of the, a very eye-opening thing uh, for me this last year and not, not even as much about what's happening in the, in the broader country, but like you just in, in my own spaces, um, you know, uh, uh, stepping back in and trying to reconcile, you know, with the church community hmm. where the reason we departed in the first place had a lot to do with race and culture. Yeah. Not only that, but that had a significant amount and to step back into a space like that, regardless of what it was about, you know, that, realizing that reconciliation wasn't even possible because we hadn't gotten to the truth part, <laughs> you know, right, and, it, right. and it making yeah. me thinking about, you know, the South African, you know, truth and reconciliation commission and all that. Commission. They literally, yeah. Before they got to a place to be even able to reconcile, they, you know, they, they exposed the truth. People came out, they were given, you know, an opportunity to share the, the truth whether good or bad and, and, and not yeah. for the sake of the country to reconcile and heal even yeah. gave um, uh, amnesty to those who were telling the truth about things they did that were horrifying, you know? Yeah. And, and um, so I've just realized that when it comes to race, racism, um, and thinking about any kind of desire for reconciliation or healing that right now we have to continue to be in a space. The least that we can do is to tell the truth, amplify the truth, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. in our spaces, even if it cuts us off from opportunities. And we know this, yeah. right? And it's not, again, I'm not saying this to make us um, the, the victims in the situation, but the reality of it is too. And I'm sure that you've experienced this in ways that even as a white person in white spaces, when you begin to tell that truth, you see how white supremacy is yeah. protected. 
you see yeah. how people who are like that, you know, um, there's a mobilization against people like that. You will be isolated and suppressed. Yeah. You will yeah. have doors of opportunity shut on you without explanation. Things will ha start happening around you that just seem funny because yeah. you, you know, and because and, you, you know, you're just, you're trouble. You're, you're shaking yeah. things up and we need to be civil yeah. and the niceties need to persist here. That's and, it. And we need to be able to be willing to step into that space and and make that sacrifice. That we got that we can be yeah. wise about it, right? Yeah. You don't come into yeah. space, you know, blazing guns, you know, you developing yeah. rapport and 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 building relationships so that when you start to speak the truth that it actually resonates. It's you know, it's, you're not a bill collector, you know, that only pops up yeah. when you know right. you're trying to take away. You know, that's it. Man. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me like Paul Cavell talks about the box and talks about it with, with, uh, with maleness and, and gender. Um, but it, it, it relates to, to whiteness too, about the system's going to is invested in keeping the system going and, and, um, you know, and in a way that we all are part of this, that we all, that we have, have absorbed this, that it's, you know, the automatic response, the unthinking response in, in the system is that, um, any act of conformity or breaking the rules or breaking the code, if you will, uh, is, is meant to be punished. And so, and, um, and so, yeah, there's, there's consequences to our actions um, in stepping outside of that that are important. And I also think it's important for us to remember that there's consequences of us staying in the system and staying in that box. Yep. And, um, and we got to get to the point where, cause I agree with you. It's about us, having a coalition and a collection in the community of those of us willing to um, willing to give up our power as Bell Hooks talks about, but willing to, to stand up against the system and say, this is wrong and, and know that there's consequences to um, that are going to come, but they are way less than the consequences of us staying in that system. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's the remembering that that's the case is, is, maybe some of that courage that we need to be able to continue to do it. Um, yeah. But we got to, we got to resist. We got to. And, and so for me, like I'm a, I grew up a comic book kid and, and Spider-Man's my, my favorite. Um, and uh, you know, so he had, had Spider-Man has to say, you know, great, with great power comes great responsibility. And so I connected to this about, right. We've got power in this system. We as white people have power in the system. We need to be using our power for good. Yep. Um, and so, even if even if it's wrong that we have the power in the first place, use that power to make a difference to to shake that system up. Yeah. Um, to to do to do the work that's needed in the moment um, is is so crucial. And you know, I think that's that we don't we haven't always done that. We haven't always showed up when to do the work that's needed in the moment. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that's what I'm hoping starts to happen Yeah. in this, in this kind of whatever's coming next and in, into, to the, to the, to episode two in that conversation they're having. I, um, I, I know enough to know that it won't change, but that's what I hope. Otherwise all these deaths and murders and, and are, 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 are continue to be a waste if we're not going to do something about it. If nothing about this last year inspires any of us to do anything differently, um, then I think we're, we're, we aren't doing our part to learn that message, but it's, it's a, 
it just continues to perpetuate that waste of life. And that's, yeah. you know, for me, we, we got to get to the point where that it's a, it's unacceptable. Yeah. Um, we got, we got to do, we got to do more than change our, uh, you know, our, our social media cover page right. in a couple service projects. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, put the poster in our window or hang a flag on our, you know, or, you know, read the book or, or make a statement. You know, it's a, to make a good statement. Right. These days. <laughs> yeah. Right. Make a good state, you yeah. know, <laughs> uh, statements. That's I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, we're going to talk about that in a future episode. I'm going to talk about good, statements. Good. <laughs> we yeah. need to have a good conversation about that. Cause I seen a dynamic yeah. uh, unfolding during this, you know, this last year of, you know, competition of, of statements and then a, a, a gang of white mm-hmm. people just waiting for the statement to be released so that they can analyze a statement on whether or not it was a conducive statement or not. <laughs> I was like, no, right, right. what the hell yeah. are we doing? What? <laughs> and even the writing of the statements is, a, I mean, you could do it, you could do it on the analyzing and then you could do it all, even on the writing and about how the, the politicky and how the, the safety, um, you know, the, we got to be safe and we got to say it the polite way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are people who did, there are people who did, a, you know, organizations and, and leaders who did them beautifully. And there were a whole lot more that just was like, what was that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's so many dynamics because, you know, there's this, it was like a year of, like, even you see on the other side, you know, uh, how many times have you heard somebody like the Trump or, or, or somebody disavow make a statement to disavow something one minute and then give a wink and nod the next minute. And then you've had a, you know, a tone death, you know, statement released, you know, in response or in support of Black Lives Matter. Then you had a very eloquently written statement um, in support of Black Lives Matter and, and, and the Black freedom struggle, you know, and and, and yeah. then they didn't do anything else after that. Now it's faded yeah, way and, you know, um, and, and yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's, well, we'll see. Well, and I, and I, yeah. I was just saying, I mean, it just made me think about something we talked about earlier, like less words, more listening, more action, uh-huh. more, more, more being in action, not just action. Yeah. No, um, but yeah, we, we talk too damn much Yeah, yeah. and, and are doing the work needed. Well, I guess in, uh, in that spirit of talking too much, no. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. We probably should wrap yeah. it here soon. You know me and you could sit here and talk about this all night, but, um, oh, man, yeah. you know, we, uh, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been great just to be able to reconnect with you or to do, uh, be more intentional of, of, of staying connected. Uh, for sure. Since I, uh, you know, I, I started working in positions that wouldn't pay for me to go to end course. So I didn't see you at the conferences anymore. Um, but, you know, be intentional of, of staying in contact, but, uh, yeah. you know, it's cl- good to be back with you. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. man. you've been, uh, you know, you, um, are, uh, you know, part of a list of people that, you know, I've been blessed to be connected with throughout the years that, um, even when we're not connected, you know, you're one of those people on my shoulders, you know what I mean? Yeah. My conscience yeah. going, you know, what are you doing with your position, you know, to advance this, you know what I mean? Don't, don't yeah. stop fall back on your heels, you know, um, yeah. I appreciate it in, in a good way, you know, yeah. I, 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 no, for sure. I mean, I, I think I, I feel the same way. I mean, I think that you were, we did good work together and, um, you know, I learned a lot from you too. Um, you know, that you helped me grow and think differently. And, um, 
you know, deepen my awareness and skills and help me shut up more and listen more. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for the time that we had. And I'm also, like you said, about I'm looking forward to, to us now, the work we're going to do moving forward. And, and this is a part of it. Like, I love the, this, this podcast that you're doing. Yeah. Um, this is a part of it. And we get to go figure out what's next for us, too. And yeah. I will continue to, to do what's needed now, but continue to inspire the next generation of people to follow us. Yeah. yeah. So that it can continue. Well, any, uh, any, any, any closing, closing remarks, anything that you want to say for, for our listeners or that you wanted to share and close out? Yeah. You know, I just, you know, I think for me, it's, uh, this, um, that's a great question. Um, but I, it's about us. I want us to, I want white people to show up. I want us to do our work and to, um, to learn when to be quiet and learn when to ask questions um, and learn how to be good partners uh, in the work for, for justice. It's, it is going to take all of us, but we haven't yet done our part. And so I, I want us to be, um, to be willing to be vulnerable, to really to be messy and willing to do the, the learn from our mistakes and then show up and, and keep showing up and, and doing differently. Um, but I also want us to, to build upon this last year. Um, how do we, how, how do we make it so that what we've all just experienced is so unacceptable for the world that we're going to, that we're going to, we're willing to sacrifice everything that we have to make it different. Um, and I, and I want us to, I want us to be inspiring all of us in this country and in the world to be, to, to, to work toward liberation, do the do the repair work that we need to do, so that we can get to the, to the reconciliation part, uh, so that we can heal and get to liberation. That's a you know that's a multi generational thing, but I want us to to really be um, all doing that work in all of our spheres because we have to.